All right, Brad fans, what is up? I am back. We are back. British Brad will be back shortly. Um, but I wanted to get this episode out uh, right away as soon as I could, partially because there's a bunch of construction going on in my building, uh, and it appears to have subsided for the moment, so I'm going to try and sneak this one in while I can. Um, and the topic today that I wanted to cover, we're going to do, we're going to circle back to COVID kids and the whole issue around schools, because this is still a hot topic. And right after I did last episode before my vacation, um, I saw some, a study on Twitter. Um, <clears throat> if you remember from the last episode, we kind of looked at some encouraging signs that, you know, maybe kids don't transmit as much and stuff like that. I immediately after doing that, um, found a study that appears to say the opposite. Uh, and like I said in the last episode, this is an evolving situation. Um, so we're going to learn more as with everything Corona. Um, but I tweeted it out right as I went on vacation. Um, so I wanted to circle back to that. I wanted to circle back to that, you know, touch base on that to use all the buzzwords. Um, and just give an update on that because I think it's, it is really important and um, obviously a lot of people are anxious about it. So we're going to touch on that. Um, and like I said, it's been tough to get a word in here uh, because of the construction noise. So hopefully, I don't know, the guys are on lunch or something. Um, I can get this one in and you might have to bear with some hammer noise in the background or something, but we're, we're going to go for it. We're going to touch on, like I said, schools opening, um, maybe a little bit more about, uh, the systemic nature of COVID, uh, in the body, uh, how many different cell types it's infecting and stuff like this, but we'll see if we get that far, uh, before the, before the banging and crashing starts again. So I'm happy to be back. I'm happy you're here with me. Uh, please do follow the show at 2 brad for you on Twitter, Instagram, subscribe, wherever you're getting your podcasts, like, comment, review, tell a friend, all that good stuff, uh, and get in touch with us if there is something in particular you want to hear about, COVID or otherwise. All right, folks, let's do this. All right, so the study that I saw on Twitter uh, right before I went on vacation is this this new study uh, out of Korea, um, and it was getting some buzz. There was a there was a New York Times article about it. Um, remember, all the all the sources will be linked on the show notes page, uh, too bad for you Um And the headline of the article is claiming that. Kids age 10 to 19 transmit as much as adults. Um, so again, we know that kids um, don't appear to get as sick as adults when they catch COVID. But the jury is still out on whether they catch it as much and whether they transmit it as much. Um, and of course, these things are, are, are so much more complicated uh, than just breaking this down. So we'll do our best. I will do my best to to walk us through this study, and then two experts um, that I follow who did very nice sort of breakdowns of this on Twitter. Um, so I'll kind of try and summarize 
you know, what I took from that and, and what they were saying. Because, you know, on this show, we listen to the experts. So, so the study in question comes from Korea. And, and in short, they basically, they use contract, contact tracing data from 59,073 contacts of 5,706 coronavirus disease, COVID-19 index patients. So if you remember an index patient is when uh, the professionals are doing a uh, outbreak investigation, the index patient is the one that they've identified as the the, the start of it, the start of that cluster of patients that they're looking at. So you find the index patient and then you start contact tracing from there. Who were they in touch with? Um, who are they going to school with? Who they work with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we had, they in this study, they identified like roughly 5,000 index patients and then looked at the roughly 59,000 uh, contacts stemming from those patients. So in the study, once they have identified an index patient, uh, they grouped them by age and they looked at the percentage of the contacts traced that got sick, both within the household and outside the household. So we're, we're really going to focus on the within uh, household stuff because um, that's where you're going to get a better, better picture of, of kids and, and, and what, how they're transmitting, who they're transmitting to. Those are the people they're most in contact with. And that's what the study and the experts uh, that I'm going to you know, cite here uh, were focused on as well. That's where you get that data. So when we're looking at within-house first, um, what they found was that the index patients uh, within household, so within a identified family unit living together 32 percent of the time these index patients were 20 to 20 to 29 years old uh, this was followed by 19.3 percent of the index patients were 50 to 59 years old and 60 16.5 percent of index patients um, for contacts that were identified within a household were 40 to 49 so this uh, is really just the ages of the index patients for for the contacts that they found within within a home. And then within these household contacts, so index patient has a family living his home, they find those. So any of the contacts that they identified um, as people also living in the house with the contact with the index patient, 11.8% of those had um, COVID. They got it. Um, and in, in that's just total. And in a household with an index patient who was 10 to 19 years of age, 18.6% of the contacts had COVID. So just to reiterate that there, because this kind of gets a little confusing with all the language and stuff like this. They're just looking at, first of all, index patients um, for people living together in a house. What were the ages? So the ages tended to be 20 to 29. 50 to 59, and 40 to 49. And then if they looked at, you know, of these 59,000 people, how many of them had, were contacts that were traced within a household from an index patient also in that household? 11%, 11.8% of them ended up getting it. Um, and then if you just look at index patients that were 10 to 19 years of age, 18% 18 of the 
um, contacts within those people's homes would have gotten COVID-19. So this is where the idea that kids age 10 to 19 are transmitting just as much as adults. Um, and in the first line of the, of the discussion or the conclusion of this paper, uh, the authors wrote, quote, we detected COVID-19 in 11.8% of household contacts. These rates were higher for contacts of children than adults. So there's this evidence here then that, um, that yes, this 10 to, 10 to 19 year old age group was transmitting, you know, just as much or maybe even a little higher than adults. But that's not as clear cut as it sounds, of course. Um, and there's a lot of important caveats to remember. Caveat alert. We need a stinger or something for that. Caveat alert. Um, it's very difficult to really know who the index patient was, first and foremost. For example, uh, the first person living in a household to show symptoms is not necessarily the first person who contracted the disease, right? And so contact tracers and public health people, they do their best to try and figure this out um, by, you know, looking at the timelines of people in the household, who went where, you know. Um, obviously, let's say you had a household uh, where the dad, no, let me rephrase that. You have a household where mom gets sick, uh, then kids and you therefore assume that you might assume that mom is the is the index patient because the kids get sick and then let's say dad gets sick even after that so you would be like okay well maybe it make it would stand to reason that mom gave it to kids kids gave it to dad but then if you look at the history and you say oh hey dad was on a on a business trip to wuhan you know a couple weeks ago well that changes the story, doesn't it? Uh, especially if the kids and the mom stayed at home in an area where there was, let's say, little transmission. So you have to, you know, account for all these factors, and that's what uh, contact tracers and public health officials do. They do their best to try and um, and figure it out. Um, second caveat: it's also uh, not possible to say with one hundred percent certainty that that index person like let's say you even got the index person right but did they give it to the other members of the household you know so again like let's say the index patient actually is mom or kids and dad ends up getting sick but dad is also you know going out to the grocery store or still working maybe he works in a high-risk environment like a hospital <laughs> or a meatpacking plant or something like this you know then you might say, okay, well, did they actually get it from the household or is it two different exposures um, that, that, that are accounting for this, this cluster? So that's why they do, that's the importance of contact tracing is that you can't just assume this sort of linear fashion and stuff like this. There's a bit of legwork that has to go into it um, and that's what these people are trained to do. So having said this, this is a really good study because it has a large sample size. Um, not so much for the kids, young kids age zero to nine, uh, and there might be some reasons for that, but overall, uh, it's a very large sample size, so you try and do your best to account for, like I said, correctly identifying the index patient and stuff like that. But because you have such a large sample size, um, when you use stats to infer uh, 
you know the per, the percentage of people that got that got COVID and were contacts of say the 10 to 19 year old age group, you know, it's more robust. The more um, uh, the more the bigger the sample size, the more robust your your data set is. The better your stats are going to be. And this, some people um, pointed out to uh, Carl T. Bergstrom, an evolutionary biologist, and this is a guy who I follow. Uh, I think he also has modeling experience. Um, he was the guy that I follow on Twitter where I got this study. Um, and so he was talking about this, that it's like he saw a lot of detractors trying to be like, well, they don't actually know direction of transmission and these problems, you know, with identifying the index case. So this means the whole thing's flawed. But it's like he made the analogy of you can't actually see someone getting cancer from smoking. You know, you can't watch the smoke particles go into their cells and slowly develop uh, into cancer. So you have to do st 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 statistical inference. And this is common. This is what you do. This is a lot of epidemiology is looking at these stats and stuff. So for the smoking example, you would look at smokers versus non-smokers and try and, you know, um, match them as much as possible for everything except for smoking. And then... What are the percentages of uh, lung cancer? And if it's significantly higher than the other, you can make a statistical inference that lung cancer or smoking is playing a role in lung cancer. And it's the same thing here. You get enough contacts, you get enough uh, cases and contacts and stuff where you can start to say, okay, with all of these numbers, you know, even if a few of them are wrong, we've misidentified them and stuff, we still see this trend or this correlation that 18% of people who live in a house with an index patient who's 10 to 19 years, years of age got COVID. So now it is possible, again, a caveat that this association of 10 to 19 year old index cases and having a higher rate of infected contacts could occur if both the index case and the secondary case, so the person who got, who was linked to the to the ten to nineteen year old in their house, um, if they had a common exposure, this would be another way you could explain that, right? So if they if they both ended up getting it from the same thing, so not in fact neither of them was really the index case. So this came from the original thread from Bergstrom that that alerted me to this to this study. Um, and I've also retweeted the thread so you can find it on the, on the at two bread for you timeline. But all of this, you know, just goes to show how very complicated teasing all of this information out really is. And so Bergstrom also pointed me to, yeah, he pointed me personally, pointed Twitter to another thread breaking down the paper by uh, a fella named A. Marm Kilpatrick. Uh, he's a professor, uh, and he studies specifically infectious disease dynamics. So exactly this, how do diseases spread? Uh, and he's at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and he had uh, also some good takes on this paper. So again, first off, he points out that it's a great study because it has a large sample size, but caveat alert, in this study, only household contacts and healthcare professionals were tested for infection. Anyone else uh, that they suspected, 
you know, as a contact would have just been monitored for symptoms and then tested if they got sick. So you could be missing some infections there. Um, and he also pointed out what we had mentioned before, that it's difficult to really know who got sick in a cluster first. And this situation, he points out, is compounded by the fact that the chance of becoming symptomatic, so you know, even being tested in some cases, is also dependent on age. So he links to one study that showed that people aged 20 to 29 are three times more likely to be hospitalized compared to those, those under 20. So this is where it gets a little bit tricky to follow, and I'm going to do my best to kind of dumb it down because not because, you know, I think that my audience, you guys can't handle it. It's literally because I can't handle it. Um, and, you know, I read through the study and stuff, and it makes sense, but in as much as I've studied diseases, parasitology, uh, genetics, all this stuff, a lot of these stats and epidemiology can get complicated very quickly and a bit over my head. I'm not really a math guy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit that right now. So if you're less likely to show symptoms, the younger you are, the less likely it is that you would be deemed the index case. And that also counts uh, if you're a contact that got sick after coming into the index case. If you're not showing symptoms, you won't be identified um, as a contact or even perhaps as the index case. Um, so younger people who, according to some studies, are less likely to show symptoms, so be hospitalized. There was another paper that showed um, severe fever as another indication in that people who are younger uh, don't show that as much. And this is kind of what we know from the kids don't get get as sick. The COVID kids aren't, aren't getting it. The COVID kids are all right. Um, so there's a bias against being counted as the, as the index kid, as the, as the index case, sorry. Um, plus, contact rates will play a role in this. And this study was done when schools were out. So this means that the amounts of contacts that the kids in the study are going to have is likely lower than normal. So not only is there a bias for them not to be the index case, um, it's also possible that they're not, because they're not going to school and mingling with all their friends and teachers, bus drivers, people on transit, you know, all of this, there were even not seeing as much transmission because this is, you know, they're not in contact like they normally would be. So as Kilpatrick points out, this is where sero surveys, so antibody tests, uh, if you remember, those are the tests that will show if you have had the infection at one point or another, um, not if you have it right now. This is where these would be really helpful because then we wouldn't be relying on symptoms uh, to identify cases and then indicate uh, transmission. Um, so it isn't safe to conclude that zero to nine year olds aren't getting infected and transmitting, which you know would be what you, one of the things you would get from from this study. Um, there's a serial survey study that was done in Spain that shows that the 
the rate of infection or the number of kids um, infected in this age range, this zero to nine age range, was only slightly lower than older people, even when schools were closed. So even when they had less contact with people, kids were basically getting infected at the same at the same rate as as older people. So that's indicating that they it's not that they're not getting it. Uh, they might not be getting as sick, but they're still getting it. Um, and then, like you said, with all these caveats about transmission and stuff like that, uh, what what can we conclude? So Kilpatrick concludes that for the zero to nine uh, age range of, of children, this study, the, the number of, of kids that they found in this study that were index patients and then tracing their contacts, it was just too small. That just happened to be... Too, not enough of them. So the when we were talking about the statistical inference, it's not as good. The error, the rates, uh, the error margins are much higher. So it's tough to make conclusions there. And like I just said, these are the reasons why those kids might not be. Uh, why that sample size might be so low is because um, they're not showing symptoms. And then he said uh, there was also a lot of mixed patterns. So you had uh, transmission was apparently low in the 0 to 9 age, higher in the 10 to 19 age, and then it dropped in the 20 to, 9, 20 to 29 age and went up. Um, so you're getting this mixed pattern, which is difficult to interpret, um, which maybe is reflected in, again, factors that aren't being looked at. So what are the 20 to 29-year-olds doing? Are they doing things that are uh, less likely to get them infected? Uh, are they wearing masks more than older groups or, you know, what have you? Um, the study was done, again, in a period where schools were closed. So this doesn't really represent uh, the situation that we're going to face when schools are opened again. There was biases in, t in detecting infected people. If, modern, if, if the monitoring of contacts or detecting in index cases was by symptoms, like I said, which was done here. And, and to be fair, that's kind of what's been done everywhere uh, in most studies. It's just logistically probably makes the most sense. Uh, and then he finishes by walking the fence so, so nicely. If anyone listens to any of the podcasts I do, you'll know that I hard walk the fence on many, many issues. Um, and he says that the study provides just enough data to make one want to do a planned study rather than opportunistic collection. And we might get the chance, uh, given that schools in many places appear to be plowing ahead. So to try and summarize that uh, in a couple sentences here, we had a really nice study that was done because it had a lot of data, a lot of data points that made us allowed us to have some confidence in the statistical inferences that they were making. However, important caveats that need to be considered. So can we conclude that kids age zero to nine are not getting infected and not transmitting? No, no, we cannot. Uh, in this study, it didn't look like they did. But I mentioned all the caveats. They don't show symptoms. Uh, and we don't know, we still don't know how symptomatic and asymptomatic people spread the disease differently. We don't know if it's higher in symptomatic people, lower in asymptomatic people. Again, you might logically conclude that it could be, 
but we don't know. Um, can you conclude that the age group of 10 to 19 is transmitting uh, just as much or more than adults? Well, why was the age, why was the age group of 20 to 29 so low? You know, I don't know that you can make that that conclusion. Now, it does throw some water on a bunch of other smaller studies. The ones that I talked about in the on the last uh, podcast that seem to be like very positive, saying encouraging signs, saying look, we don't see a lot of transmission out of these age groups. Um, but caveats to those were that they were small. This one was very big. So can we say that with certainty? No. But it looks like there's reason enough to be concerned, uh, and you, we shouldn't be just going ahead being like, oh, kids don't get it. The kids don't get it. They don't transmit it. We can't say that. You can't say that. Um, and like I mentioned, most studies to date don't take into account behavior differences among age groups. So again, like we said, this was this study was done in a time when kids were just at home, so or mostly at home. Uh, but again, we don't know. That's it's that's a lot of data to collect um, opportunistically. Uh, like Kilpatrick said, if you had a very planned study where you could more closely follow a larger group of uh, study participants, you could get a better idea of these kind of things. Um, what do, what are the differences in age groups in terms of distancing behavior? Are they uh, adhering to it more or less? Do they wear their masks in the appropriate places, in the appropriate ways? Let's not forget that, you under-the-nose mask wearers. Um, what types of activities are they doing? Are older people, which in this in this case, you know, 40, 40 to 49-year-olds, 50 to 59-year-olds, were more likely to be the index cases, are they hanging around with their friends more? They're already in a higher uh, age risk. But are they, you know, when they leave the house, are they hanging out with their friends more? What, what are the, the dynamics of the family in Korea? This I don't know if they tend to have more grandparents uh, and different generations living in the house. I, who knows? Um, I'm sure you can find that data. My assumption would be that they probably do that more than in North America. But I don't know. Um. So what, it, what, what, can, what can we take away from this? I know people are probably frustrated being like, well, what the hell, Brad? You know, give us an answer. And this is why I said in the last podcast, this is an evolving situation and we don't have the answers. We don't have conclusive data on this yet. So this is one more data point that's now saying we shouldn't rely too much on the fact or this belief or hope that kids aren't aren't big vectors of transmission um like i said there was the german study and the other ones that i talked about in the last podcast that one like were pointing to that but now we have this so we have to until we have you know really definitive evidence which unfortunately will take time and again like Pil kilpatrick says is going to take a actual planned study not just you know hey we have 
this pandemic going on. So let's just grab data from from the situation. I mean, you do that. Of course, you do that. I mean, you don't just say, oh, well, that's not good enough data. So we're not going to use it. No, of course, you do that. That's what you have at the moment. Planning a study to do something like this is going to take time. It's going to you need approval uh, from ethics committees and stuff like this to to even do something like that. So we work with what we got. And until we can get, you know, really good conclusive data, we have to go back to the basics and stick with what public health officials have been saying basically all along and where they've kind of landed on uh, return to schools and opening of shops and everything else. And that's distance, 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 especially indoors. So for schools, what does this look like? Reducing class sizes. That's, you know, if you have if you have to space out the desks and keep people, you know, apart, you're going to have to find a way to reduce class sizes. You know, maybe that's where we have to start putting some classes in the gym or looking at other ways to uh, house, uh, house classes uh, with discussions from friends. Um, on WhatsApp, there was uh, a lot of talk about using empty office buildings or um, other things that aren't being used right now, rec centers, that kind of stuff. Um, there's also the idea of forming bubbles of students within schools. So, you know, you have smaller class sizes already, but then you have, you know, you split up your 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 grades, all the kids in that grade into groups of 10 to 15, say, and they sort of move through the school day uh, together and they limit interaction with other groups of 10 to 15 kids. So you have this sort of within um, school bubble. Maybe that means that, you know, one group of 10 to 15 is in class um, one day and the other one is in the other day. And when you're not in class, you're tuning into class via Zoom, something like this, you know, some kind of compromise that way. But you have these kids that, you know, with they're within school bubble and they move through classes, recess, lunch, whatever, together. And then you try and limit contact that way. What about a plan for crowded hallways? You know, having just a just a a detailed plan of like, look at this is how we're going to release kids at the end of the day. We're gonna do classrooms on this side of the school first or this one or we're going to alternate and have them file out of the building so you don't just have you know we've all been in a crowded high school or junior high uh you know when the kids are starting to smell and they're and they haven't got deodorant yet and you we don't know what that's like so imagine if that that body odor smell was covid flying around you know and, and it's not just bo going in your nose it's it's particulates of virus so there's things you can do, you know, um, in order to stop, kind of break transmission or at least try and prevent it um, in the school environment. Masks, of course, you know, but it feels like in some places they're just saying, oh, well, everyone's got to wear a mask and, and that's all we can do. Well, masks are important, but it's not going to it's not going to work if that's the only thing. Uh, ventilation. Is another thing and that's going to be very difficult uh, for places with cold climates come fall and winter you can't have the windows in the school open because it's just too cold 
So, you know, how are you going to get airflow? Um, that's something that needs to be thought about. That's a little harder to do because if we're talking about like refitting buildings with, you know, ventilation systems that are of, of the grade that can handle virus, that's probably unlikely. Um, but maybe there's something I'm not thinking of. I don't know. Um, but those are the things that, you know, this is where we're at right now. Those are the what we know can work and that should at least be, that should be your starting point. Because, like I said before, schools need to open, just like businesses need to open, shit like this. But you have to have a good plan. We, without a plan, it, it, it does nothing. And just doing masks is not a good enough plan. Um, just doing masks and saying, oh, we're going to sanitize everything. Again, sanitizer is good. But what we know now, what the data is starting to show us is that transmission via surfaces is not as big of a player as breathing up all over each other so what's the plan going to be and i just want to as i start to wind this down when we're talking about the plan and these sort of tried and true measures as to what appears to be our best chance our best hope of breaking transmission and stuff distance Masks, ventilation, bubbles, all these great words that we've heard so much of. An ounce of prevention is going to be worth a pound of reaction. So, you know, the old adage of prepare for the worst, plan for the worst, hope for the best is kind of where, where we should be at. We have this base level, these brute force tools that we know can be effective. So let's let's just use all of them to the best of our ability rather than hoping that it's not going to be that bad or what it seems to be ha what seems to be happening in some places where it's like we're scrambling to try and find this reason why it's safe to open schools. Oh, well, kids don't transmit. Well, they don't get as sick, so they'll be fine. Well, they don't get as infected. So they're not going to, the teachers will be fine. Well, we don't, we don't know that. And rather than trying to, you know, dig through all this data and find all this stuff to, to justify the reason for, for that we can open and, it, and that it's going to be fine, just plan for a safe, a, as safe a reopening as you can. And then, and then hope that it's going to be good. And then at least you've done everything you can do, right? Then you're not the guy uh, or gal looking back at this debacle afterwards, if there is in fact a debacle, saying, oh, well, why didn't we do this? Now we have to close schools again. Yeah. And saying, and people saying, why didn't we do this? Why didn't we do that? You know, now we're in the, now we're in a worse position than we were before. So. To, to leave the school um, discussion for a little bit on this podcast, I think that's where we should be focused. It's fun going through the data. It's interesting going through the data. Uh, I really enjoyed going through this data, and I'm happy to, you know, have two podcasts that, that seem to give contrasting things. I think that that's okay. We have uh, new data points now. So 
that's kind of where we're at um, in terms of the latest data. Uh, I will continue to follow it, and if there's anything groundbreaking, then I'll let you know. But uh, as of today, which is August something, 6th, uh, you know, schools start in September here in, in Germany, and I know back home in Canada, so let's hope we get a good plan in place and that people take it seriously. And there's a cautionary tale that was also uh, brought to me by a New York Times article um, about Israel and what happened there when they, you know, did a really good job at the beginning of reducing their numbers, uh, everything like that, and then, uh, you know, went ahead with school reopenings and stuff. The title of this uh, New York Times piece, you'll find it on our website, linked on our website, but the, the headline is, When COVID subsided, Israel reopened its schools. It didn't go well. Uh, I don't I don't need to go through the whole article for you. You can read it. It's it should be freely available. I think the Times is making most of their corona coverage uh available, but Cole's notes, um like I said, they did a really good job of clamping down right away and then opening up. Um and then they opened schools and they had measures in place where, you know, the windows had to be open, um kids were had to wear masks, stuff like this. Um, but there was a couple hot days and, you know, rather than say, well, really, really hot days where we don't want to keep the windows open because we want to have the air conditioning and it's just too hot. Um, just, we'll just cancel school for those days. They said, ah, it's probably fine. We have our, you know, numbers are good. Uh, just close the windows, do the air conditioning, you know, it'll be fine. And, you know, by the end of their school year, they had, I think, 900 confirmed cases from schools. You know, there was a couple big outbreaks uh, from these schools. I think one teacher died. They had to close schools. Um, not great. And I mean, you know, the, the, they also had bars and restaurants and stuff open. Uh, so this could have ca contributed to these um, outbreaks as well. But, uh, you know, when you have 900 students infected and you have schools where they needed to close, uh, this kind of thing, even, you know, it's, it just shows you that it's, even if you have a plan, if you don't stick to it or if the plan isn't well thought out and you're just trying to force, force the situation, we need to have kids back in school. Um, there's potential that it's, you know, it's, it's not going to be, it's not going to go well. So look at the, uh, look at our website, too bad for you.wordpress.com show notes page. I'll have links to all this stuff up, uh, not to be too much of a downer there. You know, I think, like I said, we can do it, uh, have a, just have a plan like anything, have a plan, know the risks. And if you try and minimize the risks as much as possible, at the very least, you know, you won't be the a-hole at the end of it all that just said, ah, schools need to be open. We got to do it. We got to do it. We got to do it. And not, you know, and not having actually thought it out or done it. Um, I'll say again, it's probably, like I said last time, if you want nice things, you're probably going to have to pay for it. So at this point in the pandemic, 
Um, I think what we've learned, like I said, an ounce of prevention is cheaper and worth more <laughs> than, uh, you know, the pounds and pounds of reacting you're going to have to do. So that's it on the, uh, on the schools, the COVID kids. They may be all right, but they may also be transmitting COVID. So maybe the COVID kids aren't all right, but let's not blame the children. All right, folks, uh, that's all I got for today. Uh, I won't get to the, the other stuff I mentioned in the intro about cell types and uh, SARS-2, how it's getting in the body and maybe, maybe where some of these uh, wild symptoms or, you know, disparity in symptoms are coming from. You may have heard about like the losing your sense of smell or that there's uh, kidney damage and stuff like this. There's a, there's a number of articles, preprint articles coming out that are detailing some of these more odd symptoms. And, and, and the, the short story is that um, the ACE2 uh, receptor that you may have heard of that, that SARS binds to uh, to get into uh, epithelial cells, so the, the the cells lining your nose and 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 then your lungs. Um, it's actually it's expressed in cell types all over. So you can find this ACE2 all over, and and there's a ton of different um, other mediating factors that go into what why it's replicating in one place or the other. Uh, but I just thought that was kind of interesting because it's maybe this this helps describe why there's such a vast array of symptoms or outcomes. Um, I don't, I don't know if I can say that definitively yet. I don't think anyone could say that definitively yet, but, uh, I just found that interesting that it's, you know, they're finding virus in, in the intestines and stuff. And there's a high, a high number of these receptors on the cells there too. Also in, uh, male reproductive cells, you can, you get this ACE2, uh, protein. That, that SARS attacks. So maybe we'll have to, I'll coin it here now. Instead of uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome, we might get in the future severe acute sac syndrome. That's right. I went low. I went low to end the show. Um, SAS. Severe acute sac syndrome. Sorry, folks. Sorry, mom. All right, that's it. That's all. Uh, thank you so much for listening. It's great to be back. Like I said, Brad, we're, we're scheduling another one with Brad, so he will be back. We'll be doing the normal thing that we do, getting into some, some other maybe non-COVID-related stuff, take a break from that. Um, and as long as the construction doesn't screw that up in my building, we should have that for you next week. Uh, follow us at 2 brad for you Twitter, Instagram, subscribe, like the show, rate the show. Leave us a comment. Leave us a comment with a question in it. Go to the website, twobradforyou.wordpress.com. And there's a contact form. You can leave us a question, thoughts, whatever, there. Uh, all the show notes are, are up there with all the links to all the studies and articles and stuff that I talked about. Um, I'm at bvampaired on, on Twitter. You can get us there. If you don't want to do at twobradforyou on either platform, at bvampaired also works. At two bread for you, at B Van Paradox. There you go. Uh, thank you again so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Until then, take care. Bye for now. <laughs>